This podcast is recorded in front of an unwitting audience. This is True Crime Kent. Looks like we're back up. Episode 36. 36 Damn. of True Crime Kent. And that is the podcast that you have just turned on. It's True Crime Kent. <laughs> Do you remember being 36? No, because it hasn't happened yet. Oh, <laughs> and I'm sure you do. That was 11 years ago for me. <laughs> Is it? You're 47 up? I'll be 47 in September. Well, you don't look. You say you're going to be 47 in September. Yeah. You don't look six months over 46. <laughs> that is a very good compliment. Thank you. You're welcome. Ah, uh, I feel 50. <laughs> I've got more gray in my beard, I think, than you do, and that's... <laughs> disappointing but look man this episode's on Catherine Knott okay yeah and I wanted to start this episode off a little bit differently up because after listening to our last episode which was on the scream killers right mm-hmm. I realized that during that episode I took a stand against something and uh, over the past two weeks I've been listening to all the other podcasts and while I've been working. And at this point, it's almost expected these days that you take a stand against something in order to make you seem um, virtuous, morally upright. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So you got to take a stand against racism or homophobia. And, and then you got to be very outspoken about it and and letting your audience know that the very concept of either of those things just infuriates you. And it's a very brave hill that you're willing to die on uh, because there's so many people that disagree with you that racism and homophobia are bad. There's just so many of them. And you're really putting your neck out there. You, you know, are. you're really risking the the views on your show when you take a stand against those things. MLK, move over. Yeah, it's very brave. Very yes. brave. So I'm going to do the same thing with TCK. We need to pick a cause so that we can also look like really good people. And uh, I brought it up in the last episode, and I'm going to continue to do it. Okay. And uh, when it comes up, I'm just going to get so mad and say whatever makes it me look good to the audience. Okay. And our cause that we're going to pick on, we're going to, on TCK, we're going to continuously take a very brave stand against school shooters. <laughs> and I hate them. I fucking hate school shooters. I hate them so much. And so, like the Iced episode... I want to say school shooters don't listen to my podcast. Yeah. I fucking hate school shooters. This is and a I'll bold here, I know move. you're going to come in and defend them. <laughs> but don't even do, I will kick you off of this show right now if you try to say that not all school shooters are bad. I was about to say some of them are many are so misunderstood. No. 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 Nope. No. No. I'm putting my foot down. You no. Are. You School are shooters are bad, and I'll put my neck out there like that, and I'll and I'll die on this hill, and I'll take a stand against school shooters. Man, you are really willing to see some of your audience go away. I That's am. crazy. I am because I'm wow. I am I'm virtuous. Are you fed up with it? I'm fed say? up with school shooters. What? Wow. Oh, it's kind oh, of a breath it makes of fresh me mad. Air. Sometimes I'll be out and I'll see somebody with a. School shooters are okay. T-shirt on, and I'm like, ooh, every time. Me too. 
I hate I, them. Me, me too. And I'll say no. it, and I don't care if it costs us an audience. I don't think there should be any school shooters. That is a strong, strong stance you're taking there. And you know what? I'm going to back you up on it. Even though I may risk some flack or a, a, a hit on my own popular equity. Yeah. I'll be, I'm going to stand, I'm going to stand lockstep with you on this one. We're going to take a hit. I'm worried, but also. This is going to be a shot to 1159 Media. This is exciting times. Very exciting times. And and yeah. with that, you know, uh, this is a heel that I'm going to continuously die on throughout TCK is my hatred for school shooters. And I don't think we should have any of them. I say get them out of the country. I agree with. Uh, it's bold and innovative what you're what you're doing on this show. I, I feel I good. It. it feels great. And I'm glad we got that out of the way. And now let's carry on with Catherine Knott. Okay. Okay. Now, I want to say off the front, out out of the gate, there's a lot of conflicting information on this case op, dates, times, the exact order of events, etc. I put this together the best I can. I did read two books for it, as well as a slew of old newspaper articles and documentaries and other podcasts. The first book I read was called Beyond Bad by a woman named Sandra Lee. It's a really good book. A lot of information. The second book was called Man Eater by Ryan Green. And it's not a good book. <laughs> um, I feel like most of it was made up. And oh, I think I have a little bit of a vendetta against Ryan Green, maybe because I read that first book to make the bones of my outline and then got into the second book, realizing that Ryan Green was full of shit and almost had to completely redo my outline. So, so the bones of your outline started looking like the elephant man's skull. Exactly. He took from- a lot of... Uh, a lot of creative freedoms. Lib- liberties. Yes. Hate that. So I've I've put this together the best that I can with the dates and everything and compared information. And it's the best I could do. And if something's okay. wrong, I'm sorry. There's just a lot of conflicting information. You're going to hear different stories on other podcasts, documentaries, uh, texts. But this is, from what I can tell, the best and most accurate order of events. Well, I appreciate you disclaiming that because a lot of people I've noticed, especially on social media lately, come to our shows for all of their news and information on topics such as COVID and the correlation between Roe v. Wade. Uh, and yeah. so it's important that you state that in this case, we are not professionals, but that we have PhDs in Australian crime research i don't have a phd in anything but i do hate school shooters you do i think you've got about a phd in that if there was a school that had a shooting i think they would have you do that speech that famous people get to do when they get a free free award on school shootings at yale Mm -hmm. yeah i think you're you're like the um the my pillow guy for school shootings you Thanks, man. You're welcome. That's very nice of you to say. I appreciate that. <laughs> yep. We're going to kick off this episode. We're not going to talk about Catherine Knott. We're going to talk about her mother and her mother's name. We're going to start with her mother's story because a lot happens. This is going to be a couple part episode. I don't know if it's going to be a two or a three parter yet, oh. but this is going to be part one and a good chunk of part one is talking about her mother because her mother was a real 
wanker. Because this is happening in Australia. She's yeah, a that's wanker. an Australian term. Barbara Claire Thorley, Catherine's mom, was born in the 1920s and would eventually become, like I said, the mother of the bad girl in our story, Catherine Knight. Now, Barbara was a fiery redhead known throughout her entire life to have a foul mouth and a hot temper. She cussed more than I do up. Every other word was an F-bomb. Seriously, seriously, we're going to get into some quotes here in a bit. The inside of your head would sound like a black church on a Sunday morning around this woman. Wow. <laughs> Every other word she said was an F-bomb. Again, from Australia. Australia, so yeah, which is fucking. Yeah, it's a lot of that. Now, in the early 1940s, Barbara does meet a pig farmer by the name of Jack Rowan, spelled Ruffin, though, R-O-U-G-H-A-N, but it's Rowan. And uh, eventually they marry. They settle down in Aberdeen, Australia. And in 1945, Barbara does give birth to her first son, a little boy by the name of Patrick. Now, not long after Patrick is born, Martin Rowan is born. He's the second to come sliding out of Barbara. And... I don't know why that felt gross to say. It looked gross to say, too. <laughs> Smelled gross to say. <laughs> so, a little bit on Aberdeen here, where this is going down. Aberdeen was a town with uh, very limited employment options out. They, it came down to really three things. That was farming, mining, or the slaughterhouses. Uh, kind of like my hometown. The only three options we had there were Dollar General, meth, and pills. <laughs> uh, so I guess it was nicer than my hometown. We didn't have a slaughterhouse. <laughs> we would have loved a slaughterhouse. Yeah. Would have taken our mind off all the meth and pills. <laughs> God damn, we got Dollar Generals for days, though. <laughs> <laughs> and then they fought whenever we tried to get the town wet. Bible thumpers fighting. Well, <laughs> there's going to be alcoholics everywhere. And there's already people scratching their necks and Dicks hanging out, walking up the street, fighting ghosts. Is it that bad? I mean, I'll trade alcoholics for those guys. I agree with At you. At least alcoholics just sleep a lot. <laughs> They're not in your back seat when you get up to go to work in the morning. Ah, <laughs> uh, So we're going to switch gears here a little bit, and we're going to Go across town to a man by the name of Ken Knight. And this is the man that Barbara will eventually leave her husband Jack for. Now, Ken Knight was also a man of the slaughterhouse. And he had been since he was 14 years old. He'd been slaughtering that cows and pigs and pussy since he was 14 years old. <laughs> wow. And I said, said that because he was also a real hard ass. Hard worker, hard drinker. A man's man. He could go through a cow corpse faster than Leatherface, and he was hard to keep up with at work, according to everybody that, you know, talked about him. Everybody seemed to like Ken, though. This guy was like the redneck Australian 1940s white version of Mr. Steel Yo Girl. <laughs> you know what I mean? Probably smelled like the underside of a horse saddle. I've always been curious about that. Like, have you ever noticed, like, uh, the 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 fragrance of a dominant man does not need to be appealing to to attract women. I don't understand that. Like I've met guys pheromones, I guess, or maybe a gun to the back. I don't know what it takes, but some of these guys smell like wildebeests, but they just slay yeah, it. I think half ladies. the time it's rape. 
<laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's that that old spice sense nobody wants to talk. I think about. it goes back to like caveman, like primal mm. stuff, right? Yeah. The guy that was sweatiest in the tribe two thousand years ago probably had the biggest club ego. <laughs> club. <laughs> I like that. Good job. So yeah, Ken Knight was a was a ladies' man, you know, chest hair sticking out of his once white work shirt. <laughs> he could probably drop the transmission out of a Ford in the driveway with limited tools all while maintaining an erection and having intercourse at the same time. That kind of guy. <laughs> My favorite. He was a tall, stout dude. And the slaughterhouse, that's where Ken Knight eventually bumps into Jack Rowan. So they were fellow employees. They eventually become friends. And they would go out drinking together. And like I said, Ken was far superior to Jack in every sense of the word to a little hick like Barbara. He could drink more. He could swing the meat cleaver harder. He was bigger. He was stronger. He would probably be better at domestic violence. All the desired <laughs> qualities of a man in rural Australia in the 40s. Jack just throws little jabs. Ken throws fucking haymakers. Ken hits that lady. She's going to go unconscious, and that's hot. She likes yeah. that. That'll keep her with him. This is backwoods Australia. Because mm. I think even in the nice places in Australia, everything wants to kill you. But this is the backwoods <laughs> of Australia. Right? Everything's going to kill yes. you. <laughs> yeah. Right. This is a hard people. These are hard people. It was during one of these drinking outings that the two buds would be out on, you know, Ken and Jack here, that Ken would be introduced to Jack's wife, Barbara. She had actually come to the pub in one of these booze fests to pick Jack's drunk ass up, and along the way had bumped into Ken there at the bar, who was probably better at holding his alcohol, too. So, <laughs> on January 10th, 1950. Oh. Oh, January 10th, huh? Oh, what? World record. Oh, yeah. World record. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, that's weird. Oh wait, this isn't. This is Australian. Oh, sorry, sorry. I was thinking about the 1943 one C bronze world record. Set no, in go ahead. 10. Just go, go get it out of your system. Yeah, it's well, crazy. I mean, as you can remember, it it's was not going to be minted in Philadelphia. Auction record mm. three hundred seventy-two thousand dollars for that. Wow. Yeah. It's wild. Wild. Ninety-five percent copper. Ninety-five. Five percent tin and zinc. Just like every other penny, you'd think like, oh no, what's in my pocket? Yeah. Oh, That's boom. What I was thinking. Um, over a quarter Clear million dollar man. penny. Ninety-five percent. Oh, it's crazy. Who even thought? You did. About it? And that's the problem. Yep. That's the fucking problem. Oh, uh, where was I? Uh, 95%. That's going to be rattled around in my head the rest of this episode. I don't know why, because it's stupid. January 10th, 19... <sighs> January 10th, 1950. Fucking 95%. Penny doesn't even matter. We're in Australia. January 10th, 1950. Jack and Barbara's third son, Neville Ruffin, Rowan, is born. So they got, she got three kids now. Or her and Jack have three kids now. Now, not long after Neville's little birth here, they had another party at the local pub for all the slaughterhouse workers. And they were all there. They were encouraged to bring their wives by management, and they did. And at the pub that evening, uh, Ken started flirting with Barbara all night long right in front of Jack while Jack got drunk. Now, Jack's probably drinking. He's probably sipping on Mike's Hard Lemonades and Long Island Iced Teas, you know? 
<laughs> yeah. Ken slamming shots of whiskey. It was pretty obvious flirting, too, according to people. They weren't specific on what kind of flirting uh, that Ken was doing. I would imagine he's the kind of guy who'd probably do a straight shot of whiskey, right, and then slam the shot glass down and just fucking smack Barb across her tits <laughs> while maintaining eye contact with Jack, and they bounce back. You know those balls that psychiatrists keep in their... And on their desk where you pull one back and you let it go and then it hits the other chrome ball and they pop, pop, pop. That's what he would do. He would do a shot of whiskey, (laughs) slam it down and then slap her in the tits and one would fly up and then it hit the other one. And they all got a goddamn laugh out of that. It was real funny. And I made that up. I don't know if you need. I don't even know if any of that's true. 1950s, though. Those are those torpedo bra. Yeah. Tits. Yeah. Why was that? Boobs were shaped different in the 50s. I don't know why they would want that. I, All shaped like shark heads. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I do not know what the appeal was to that. I kind of like it. Nope. I'll be honest. I don't know I why. Don't. I was born for <laughs> the fifties, though. With those. <laughs> I was born in a different time. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, ninety-five percent on that penny, huh? <laughs> yeah. The next time such an event took place. So they, they they have another event not long after there at the pub for the uh, slaughterhouse workers. Barbara, she begins flirting back up, and Ken picks up on it. Now, Jack, completely oblivious to this because of all the mimosas he'd been slamming while Ken was binging Budweiser and tequila straight, Jack, Barbara's w- husband, eventually passes out. And then he gets dragged home by his friends. And his friends leave Barbara and Ken there at the pub together while Jack is asleep at the house. Now, by closing time for the pub, it was just Ken and Barbara, just the two of them. And when the door shut to the pub up, the two of them stroll off together into the night towards Ken's shitty little one-bedroom apartment, just a stone's throw away from the slaughterhouse, or uh, what we call in my town a crack rock's throw away. <laughs> I just realized something. Did you did you pick up on this, Barbara and Ken? Oh yeah, <laughs> Bar, Barbie Barbie and Ken. Ken. Yeah, ah, that's about a, that. Pretty good. Well, ninety five percent on that penny too. Yeah. Oh, just over three grams. Just three point one one. I was trying to do the math. That's Crazy. wild. I know. Me too. Yeah. Can you leave? <laughs> <laughs> nope. And I'll just say the rest no, of this. I'll just speak into the mic, and you cannot be here for the rest of it, if that would be. That's one way to do it. <laughs> contractually obligated to be here, unfortunately. Uh, they went back to Ken's apartment. What do you think happened there, Op? At his apartment. What do you think they did? They fucked Probably. a lot. <laughs> they fucked a lot in positions you've never even heard of. Probably on tops of piles and piles of hot rod magazines and Budweiser cans and DeWalt tools and back issues of Slaughterhouse Weekly. They fucked until sweat was dripping off his balls onto the bloody aprons that laid in his floor. It was just so much fucking. <laughs> they weren't married. No, you, you know that your penis and vagina still work between two people, even if they're not married. Nah, never. Doesn't happen like that. I read the brochure you sent. Yes, good. See, lots of facts in there. Not just coin. Not just coin facts will change your life, huh? Yeah. Now, after the fucking uh, 
Barbara was able to rush home before Jack woke from his drunken mimosa and screwdriver slooper, stupor, and he was none the wiser. He never found out. So she got she got some of that D and then snuck back to the house and just went on about her life. Now, the next outing after this Ken and Barbie, thanks for putting that in. Thanks for putting that seed into my head. Now I'm never I'm going to be fighting <laughs> saying the word Barbie for the rest of this episode after. The next outing after the Ken and Barbara fuck fest, it was quite different. So they're at the pub. Also, this Ken kind of put another shrimp in his barber. <laughs> oh, that was, that was fun. God. The next out, oh god, ninety five percent on that penny. The next outing after that uh-huh. Ken and Barb fuck fest was quite different. Ken and Barb acted like they acted like nothing had happened, and they ignored each other entirely. Which honestly, that would be a little suspicious, a little suspicious. I think Ken did flirt with the bartenders, yeah. and the entire time they were there having fun, Jack kept his arm around Barbara, and they were com- he was and Jack was completely unaware that a larger penis. Had won her over just a few nights before, one that ejaculated the 10W30 and had trap muscles and smelled of gunpowder and chainsaw exhaust. I bet Jack's penis smelled like tofu and wore a fedora. Dora the Explorer? What? A fedora. It's like the... <laughs> you see him a lot in vape shops. Yeah. <laughs> D&D games. Yeah. A lot of fedoras. Comic book stores and vape shops. You see a lot of fedoras. Yeah. Tofu, the smell of tofu and kale on the breath. <laughs> Avocado toast. <laughs> the affair between Ken and Barb went on for some time up. And uh, while it was happening, actually, Barbara almost completely shut Jack off from her crotch. So <laughs> you said not. You said Jack off. <laughs> <laughs> I did. A wanker. Oh. I, I did. I did say that. But while they're ha- while she's having the affair with Ken, they're not. These two, they're still banging it out, but very rarely because mm. she's getting dicked down at that smelly little apartment. <sighs> January 21st, 1951, Jack and Barbara's fourth son, Barry Rowan, is born. So now they've got four kids, four sons, all sons. But uh, this relationship comes to an end because eventually Jack does find out about the affair and the way he finds out was pretty funny up. <laughs> One night, Jack decides he's going to really let her have it. You know, he's going to rail her for maybe eight or nine seconds this time. <laughs> he's like really feeling feisty. And Barbara, Barbara finally gives in, figures she just imagined he was a man that could change the belt on a riding mower while it happened. <laughs> and uh, when she spreads her legs, Jack discovers a hand-shaped bruise on her inner thigh. Oh, <laughs> really? Yeah. And, you know, she probably was trying to like, oh, that's my hand. And he's like, this is like a fucking, looks like a stack of bananas hit you. <laughs> you got little bitty hands. This is... <laughs> You've been fucking Shrek. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. You know, I feel like I've had sex enough times. I've never just slapped a girl on the inside of her thigh. That's not a that's not a place where girls are like, I really you know what I love it? When guys <laughs> slap me on that sensitive skin yeah. on the inside of my thigh as hard as they can. I've heard of girls liking being smacked on the ass or having their hair pulled, but they're never like, Hey, if you could slap me on that soft spot under my tits, 
I, w- I really like that. I really like the stinging, horrible sensation on that soft spot under my tits. It's like the same spot, like on the inside of your thighs. Who does that? Nobody likes getting smacked or pulled. Nobody. Say they do. Op- they enjoy it. Op- there's in Ooh. the Western world. I don't think so. You know what? You sent me some brochures. Let me send you some brochures. <laughs> I'd welcome them. Thank you. I'm always interested in procuring knowledge about other people's beliefs. I'm about to turn you into an alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) So there's this bruise on the inside of her thigh. And for the first time in his life, Jack here, he acted like a real 1940s backwoods Australian man and beat the hell out of her. Uh, Probably while crying and slamming blue motorcycles. The whole time. And a blue motorcycle is a girly, fruity drink. Op, I know oh, you don't drink, it? so I'll let you okay. know what that is. Yeah, And they're actually delicious. They had like a really nice collection of model motorcycles or something. I didn't no, no, no. They're just a girly, fruity drink. They're delicious. Mm. Oh. And they'll give you a hangover every oh. time. Oh, sounds illegal. <laughs> so after he beat Barbara, he threw her clothes out in the mud in the street and then kicked her out of the house. And that ruckus, uh, it, it brought nosy Nancy's looking out their doors and looking and made an impression on the community. And then the blabbermouths in the town all started talking. And you know how it goes. Linda down at the hair salons telling her friend Gertrude that she heard the Rowan woman was getting snow plowed by a much stronger masculine man while their heads are underneath those giant fucking perm helmet things. Looks like a 55-gallon drum with holes in it. Looks like it's been shot with birdshot. Do you know what those are? No. They're hair dryers. I thought they were for conspiracy theorists. They also pick up certain radio frequencies, I think. (laughs) Remember, they're not a thing now, I don't think. But when I was a kid, I just remember seeing the old ladies in there with magazines reading while their heads were in those giant trash cans. (laughs) True. (laughs) What does it do? It dries your hair. It's just like a sort of an ambient dryer. It doesn't like, it's not directional. The whole thing is like, ooh, you know. You know what else drives your hair? The atmosphere. <laughs> it's true. It's <laughs> a good point. The same day that Barbara's thrown out of her house, she moves in with Ken Knott in his shitty little dirty, sexy apartment there, where each step brought on the distinct sound of aluminum cans hitting each other. <laughs> Love was in the air, and it mixed with the smell of slaughterhouse aprons and stale beer at the ceiling. Just a real sweet, romantic situation here. Yeah. In the streets, when she'd walk down the streets, Barb, uh, people would call her names like whore and old silly puss. Mm. <laughs> they didn't call her old silly puss. I'm sorry. <laughs> they got some weird offensive terms in Australia. They call her a whore. But uh, okay. they probably didn't call her old silly puss. I made that one up. I made the old silly puss up. That's what I'd have yelled. I'd been like, hey, 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 old silly puss. She'd be like, I don't even know what that means. And I'd be like, me either. I got to go in here and get a perm. <laughs> By the way, I hate school shooters. Fuck you, Barb, you whore. And then I'd go in. This is so hard to do with you. <laughs> this is the 40s. That's how I would have been in the 40s. Well, I would have. I, I have to remind myself all the time that you're trying to be. Yeah, generationally accurate here. You're not just trying to be. No, that's not me now. This is how Ken would have been in the 40s. And if you're listening and you're upset, this is how you would have been too. 
you old silly puss. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's what I tell my I tell myself that every time we're talking about any sexual encounters or murder houses or devil dens, that you're just trying to recount history. And this is like it's like a, you're the David Attenborough of true crime. Of inbred true crime. <laughs> so, just keeps me going. Like if David Attenborough was a Rob Zombie character. <laughs> And also didn't graduate high school. <laughs> I graduated high school, by the way. <laughs> I even went to some college. Her own children, her own children now hated old silly puss. Uh, that's what I'm going to say. Her own children, <laughs> her own children hated her, and they sided with their father. She's got four boys with Jack, like I said, and they all sided with Jack. They hated their mom. She figures she's got nothing to live for here anymore in Aberdeen, and she starts begging Ken not to take her away, and so he does. And on June, and in June of 1951, the two of them pack a suitcase and hit the road, Jack. You see what I did there? Uh, I see what you did the there. Because the ex-husband, well, still husband, but his name was Jack. <laughs> so I said, I, they hit the road, Jack. And that's a song. And in the song, it actually says, hit the road, Jack. And don't you come back, you whore, you whore, you whore. You <laughs> silly puss. Oh, silly puss. And then I said, hit the road, Jack. And his name is Jack. Yeah. Eventually, they settle. So they hit the road and... They settle in Wallangara, Australia, five hours away from Aberdeen. And Wallangara seems pretty uh, forgetful. Uh, not forgetful. Forget, forgettable. And with only one court appearance and a few letters, her divorce with Jack is secured. And the two of them are free up. Ken and Barb are now free to be together. She's divorced legally. Ken, there in Wallangara, gets a job at Wallangara Meatworks at Long's Lane. And by the way, it was open until just 2016 when it closed its doors. The building's still there. Oh, wow. So they had a good run. This is the 50s, early 50s. It had, I think I read that it started in like 44. So they, they were in business for 56 plus 10, 66 plus 6, 72 years. Wow, that's a meat legacy right there. Yeah, it's a lot of meat. Mm. It is. In 1952, the two, they get married. And Ken's brother, Oscar, or not, he was the best man at the wedding. We'll get more into Oscar here in a little bit. He's one of the few actual good men in this story. That same year, Barbara, she gives birth to Kenneth Charles, not the second. They would end up calling him Charlie. So now she has four sons with Jack who are living with Jack. And she has one son now with Ken. Ken becomes, though, unfortunately for, for Barbara here, old silly puss. Ken becomes a raging alcoholic and begins blowing all their money that he made at the slaughterhouse on booze. He drank every single day, and he also began regularly beating Barbara for even the slightest infraction, and he also op raped her up to 10 times a day, all while she was trying to raise a young boy. Wow. Uh, and this is another thing. I'll take a stand on this. I don't agree with it. I don't think you should beat your wife, and I'm staunchly against rape. Like, staunch. Don't even try yeah. to give me a counter-argument off. I, I don't want to hear it. I can see it in your eyes. You're whipping up some pro-rape argument over there, but I'm not going to hear it. Not on this show. I was, I was just pulling up Fox News to see what my beliefs were <laughs> on the topic. Over there just quickly typing in 
Ben Shapiro. Right. What would Stephen Crowder say to this? Stephen Crowder rape opinions. <laughs> Rape's all right. Change my mind. I would be interested in watching that episode of Change My Mind, though. <laughs> Just... Give us another 10 years and we'll be having, we'll have to open a dialogue on that. I guarantee you. February 1955. Barbara discovers she's pregnant again. And this time up, it's twins. On October 24th, 1955, Barbara shits two little redheaded, non-identical twin girls out of her vagina. And they say, they said, they ended up saying that because the girls are redheaded and they, there were multiple of them that, uh, and the color of the girl's head, her vagina, Looked like Mario shooting those fireballs whenever he would. <laughs> when she gives birth to the two girls, Ken wasn't there. He was in the middle of a 12-hour shift down at the slaughterhouse, and that's romantic. Uh, she named those girls Catherine and Joy. And uh, Catherine's full name is Catherine Mary Knott. And Catherine Mary Knott will make slaughterhouse history in her very own way, just like Daddy. And that's pretty sweet. Mm. That's very nice. That is. Now, in 1957, when the twin girls are two years old, Ken once again picks the family up and moves them four hours away to Gunnedah in search of work. Now, there in Gunnedah, he gets a job at the Gunnedah Meat Works, and they close their doors in 1997. It seems kind of like the meat industry is dying in Australia. That's what I've got from this, because all the old slaughterhouses and goddamn, there were a bunch of them. There's actually a few times here when the family moves and gets different jobs at slaughterhouses that I skip because nothing really happened while they were there. But mm. uh, most of them are closed now. I'll bet it has something to do with the innovation of the refrigerator in everybody's home. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Now, growing up. Joy, the twin sister, but twins, not identical twins, right? They look different. They're just, what do they call that? Um, when you're born at the same time, but you don't look the same? Yes, illiterate. Illiterate. Uh, I don't think that's it. Nope. That would be congenial. Nope. nope. That's not it either. Congenial Fraternal. twins. Fraternal. 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 Fraternal are one and paternal is the other. Well, growing up, Joy, she becomes a tomboy. She was more outgoing than Catherine, uh, the the main villain in our story here, Catherine. Catherine preferred the dresses and the dolls and was introverted and quiet. And meanwhile, Joy, she's running around and she's a tomboy and she's throwing rocks at, I don't know, homeless people or dogs or whatever and playing war and just being one of the guys. You know, Catherine yeah. was a daddy's girl. Mm. And uh, she acknowledged that Ken ruled the house. And uh, he did so with an iron fist, and he would accept a disobedience from nobody. Now, Ken did pass out beatings pretty regularly at the Knott household, and he usually used a dog leash or an extension cord. That was his preferred method of handing out beatings. So, Catherine, she's growing up. She's seeing her mom beaten and raped pretty regularly. The other kids are, too. And this becomes a regular thing that they see at their house, and it probably affects her later. Now, while the boys enjoy would sometimes get a beating for the same thing over and over and over. Say, like, I don't know, one of them, what's something that you would do as a kid? Shit, say one of them shits in the microwave. Yeah. Catherine only would ever shit in the microwave once. Ah, she learned her lessons. Yeah, so she only ever had to be told once. And meanwhile, the other kids, the boys, Joy, they would be like, ah, oh, fuck, I accidentally shit in the microwave again. And then they would get beat again because they forgot the first time they got beat for shitting in the microwave. 
Boys progress at a different rate when it comes to that. Catherine, you know, she looked up to Ken. And she wanted to be just like him. And she also mm. loved the slaughterhouse. The idea of working in a slaughterhouse. That's weird. Yeah. I don't think anybody. Well, I guess there are people. It's the passion. Yeah, it's just usually people, when they choose a passion, it's like engines or or nunchucks, Funko Pop figures. Um, <laughs> fedoras. Fedoras. Vaping. Yep. The passion is that usually slaughter, like killing animals. Like, that's my passion. I really <laughs> love just the way that bolt hits that fucking pig right between the eyes. Music, <sighs> music to their ears. Music between their ears. Might as well be a hydraulic guitar to me. (laughs) Between the beatings and the children basically siding with Ken, Barbara, she sunk further into depression and went basically went throughout motherhood and and her wife duties on cruise control in a robotic state. So she's not in a good place. She's thinking, maybe I should have stayed with Jack Rowan. Hmm. You know, this isn't ideal. I would say the rapings and the alcoholism and the beatings with the extension cords. She's like, this is not how I pictured living. But despite the fact that Catherine preferred her father over her mother, Barbara did begin teaching Catherine everything she could about housekeeping. So cooking and sewing and cleaning, all the uh, duties and taking care of a home. And by six years old, Catherine was already up, kind of legitimately helping her mother cook dinner in the kitchen and clean and take care of the house. And I mean actually helping not just making a big goddamned mess while the mom goes, oh, wow, what a big helper. You know how being a parent is. Sometimes my kids will bring me stuff that they made out of clay, and I'm like, that looks so good. You are so talented. But in my head, I'm like, that looks like a big piece of shit, and you have no yeah. talent. <laughs> I don't think that'll affect think kids. All, all parents. You just you just spoke the words for all parents there. You know, I wonder, though, with that, that – um if Barbara was doing some kind, whether it was conscious or subconscious, like trying to pull Catherine away from the influence of her dad, you know, by teaching her these things, either as a way to kind of bring her back and, and you know, kind of maybe try to rescue her or because she was like, hey, learn these skills because these will be the fastest ways to avoid beatings So in your own life. I think it's more of the second than the first, because uh, you're going to learn here in a little bit. Barbara, also a shitty mother, not oh, a good mother. Eh. Okay. And we're going to find that out pretty quick. In 1959, when Catherine is four years old, so it's 59, Ca- little Catherine is now four years old. That old cut Jack Rowan, he dies. And I don't know how. I looked and looked. I searched and searched. I couldn't figure out how Jack died. But uh, he dies. And the two oldest sons, 14-year-old Patrick and 12-year-old Martin from Barbara's first marriage. So remember, she had the four boys with Jack before she ever ran off with Ken. The two oldest ones, they come and they live, they begin living with Barbara and Ken. It's a full house. It is a full house, yes. The two younger ones had went to live with uh, Jack's sister, with their aunt. Mm. And like I said, you know, these boys, they were teenagers at the time. And they felt like they hated Barbara. So they fell right into place amongst the other children, treating Barbara like shit, because, like I said, they considered her a whore for cheating on their now dead father. So they kind of fit right in. <laughs> That's sweet. That's just endearing <laughs> qualities. 
Uh, but those two boys, those two teenage boys, pretty quickly started getting shunned from the public and social events in the community. And I'm going to let you guess on why they started getting shunned. They would not learn their lesson fast enough and poop in other people's microwaves as well. Close. What they actually got shunned from by the community for was many failed molestation attempts on local girls. Wow. Failed, huh? Yeah, so they were just trying to molest everybody. And we're like, oh, no. They'd be coming down the street eating, I don't know, kangaroo. Corn dog. Kangaroo. Just holding a kangaroo and eating it. That's what they do down there in Australia, isn't it? They got it by the neck. Just eating kangaroos. They'd be coming down the street and they'd be like, oh, no, here comes those um, those molesters. Those molesting boys. Faux molesters or faux lesters, if you will. <laughs> faux, doesn't that mean fake? Fake. Yeah, well, because they, they, they kept not successfully doing it. Yeah, but they were trying. Mm. God, they neo, tried so hard. Neo lesters. Neo molesters? Neo lesters? Neo lesters. Yeah. Well, anyway, normal teenage stuff. Yeah. Just shenanigans. I was trying to look into your eyes to see how you reacted to that. I was trying to find something there. For normal teenage stuff to <laughs> yeah. see if I was like, I just was like, yes, that is correct. <laughs> normal teenage stuff that I have never been convicted of. <laughs> now, this next part of the story op is, uh, is up for debate. Catherine claims that it's true to this day. She claims it's true. And psychologists that have evaluated her believe it to be true. It has also been confirmed by some family members. But the, the reason I say it's up to debate is that a lot of other family members say it's a lie. That's not true. So mm. I can't say this is 100% true, but it is true according to Catherine and her psychologist. And with that being said, we're going to push forward here. According to Catherine, those two older teenage boys, they turned their perversion because they couldn't get away with it outside of the house, right? They kept getting busted or just not being good at molestations. They they turned it inward, and Catherine became the target. And those teena- two teenage boys, they began molesting and sexually assaulting Catherine. And if you're trying to do the math here, it's their half-sister uh, from the ages of 4 to 14. So from the from the time that Catherine was four years old to 14 years old, so a decade, she was molested by these two teenage boys. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, starting to begin to understand where this, if you know, the, if you're familiar with this story, how she ends up the way she does. And the molestations with these two teenagers started with touching and cuddles and gentle kisses and then gradually transformed into them stripping her naked and doing whatever they wanted with her. So... Not a good time. You know what? I'm going to go. I'm going to go out on a limb and say I don't think that's okay. I don't either. I'm going to take a stand, just as much a stand against this as school shooters. That's bold. That's strong. You're. You're. I don't care if we lose listeners. Might lose a molester. I don't care if you are a molester or a school shooter. You need to get out of the country because we'll find you. Because we'll find you, and I will wear a shirt says that I don't like what you do, bucko. We'll rape you. And you know what's the worst of all? A molesting school shooter. Yes. That's the worst. That is a busy person. No time on their hands. Just a lot Just of planning. shooting and fiddling. FBI never be on them. Fiddling and shooting. Probably goes in that Just. order because you usually only shoot once. <laughs> well... Name name a school shooter that school shooted twice. Oh, good question. Well, I guess there's been a couple that started at home and then went to school. Yeah, but two different schools. Mm. Not one. Nah. 
Not one. It's pretty much a it's a one it's a one time gig. Yeah. Yeah. Shitty business model. Not smart. December twelfth, nineteen sixty one. Barbara's eighth child, Shane Knight, he is born there in Gunnadal Hospital. So sixty one, the eighth one comes rolling into this world. And as the two younger boys grew older, Catherine's full brothers, they joined in with their half brothers in the molestation of Catherine. Jeez. So by the time she's a teenager, literally every boy in this house, aside from her dad, is molesting her regularly. See, when that kind of thing happens, I wonder if mom's aware of it. That's a good way to she put it. She probably is. Yes. And, yeah. and well, you're getting ready to find out why I think that she was probably aware of it. Oh, um, and that's okay. this is where the speculation right ends, where they're like, we don't know how much of this is true, how much is a lie. Mm-hmm. All family members agree that Catherine was molested, but they can't seem to reach an agreement on who it was that molested her. And Catherine herself says that it was her brother's. Mm, so, okay. uh, yeah, I think she's probably telling the truth here. Yeah, well, yeah, she's got a lot of other things on her plate, I believe, that are both coming up and uh, that happened in her life where, you know, why would, she, why would she make this up? Yeah, exactly. You know, so other things that I would be like, should have never said that thing, but, yep. Catherine's mother, Barbara, and this is where I get into, she probably wasn't a very good mother. Catherine's mother, Barbara, was very, very open and graphic to young Catherine about her sex life and how much she hated men. So she's always going on about hand jobs and BJs and doggy style and fucking fuck men and all men are pieces of shit and you just got to, you know, and sex and all that. And because of this, Catherine felt open to talking about her mom, talking to her mom about this stuff. And Catherine Mm. once asked her mother, uh, what to do. She was young, probably about 11, 10, 10, 11 years old. She asked her mother what to do if boys did things that she didn't like. And Barbara replied, quote, ah, just let them do what they want with you. It's easier that way. Wow. Unquote. Wow. Uh, not sound advice, I would say. Maybe even terrible advice. No. You know? That's, yeah. I think this woman Ill-advised. is a bad mother. Yeah. I'm going to go with you on that. And, you know, at 10, 11 years old, if if a, a girl is as a father or a parent says this to you, well, first off, you got to be like, hold the fucking phone. Who is first off, you shouldn't be having any kind of anything sexual right now. But who is doing this to you? There yeah, was no there further gouging for questions. It was just I, I just mm. let them do what they want to you, Catherine. Makes me think that she knew what was going Probably. on. Probably. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because of this response from her mother, uh, poor Catherine never reported the molestations to anybody, and it didn't come up until until she was on the stand. I mean, until later, after she was in trouble. Wow. That's terrible. In 1965, Catherine, she fell the gr- fifth grade. School was always hard for her. She made shit for grades and was always on the bottom rung academically. Um, in 1968, so three years later, she's about 14, 15 years old. She fails a school test op. And uh, the students, they walk out of the classroom. Catherine's sitting there alone with her paper. So she's got a, whatever the Australian version of an F is. And uh, probably it's W. Just, just it's, wanker. Or it's F, but it's just the swear word. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> just. <laughs> How did you do in school this I year? I got one fuck. <laughs> sounds Australian. Sounds about right. <laughs> 
A B yeah, is B. A C, a C stands for cunt. Good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a A is an A, but it, they go A. Hi. Hi. B is a B. So she's sitting there in her desk op and looking at this paper. And the teacher, he walks up to be like, hey, you know, it's not the end of the world, blah, 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 blah. Catherine starts accusing him that it was his fault. It's like, well, I'm under you. So if I didn't, if I failed this, it's your fault. And it seems like she drove herself into a rage and stands up and pulls a knife from her pants and starts lunging what? at the teacher, trying to gut him, trying to stab him. And he, Why? in like a pure, like pure survival mode, just knocks her unconscious, just hits her with a rock, <laughs> just punches a 15-year-old in the face. Really? Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, around this time, Catherine obviously had the knife. Uh, other teachers run into the classroom, and they're like, what the hell's going on? And he's like, the little bitch tried to stab me. Like, you know, and he ended up getting suspended for a little bit, but they ended up determining that it was self-defense. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Oh, my gosh. So Catherine was hot-headed. I'll bet you there's a... Yeah. Wow. There's a lot of teachers listening right now that are like, boy, I wish I could cold cock a kid like that. <laughs> wow. 1969, so a year later, the family, they moved for the last time, and this time they moved back to Ken's hometown of Aberdeen there in Australia into a... Pl- you keep... You keep saying in Australia. Just should we just blanket statement this? They never. They never got, got out of Australia. Australia. Okay. They never got out of Australia. The whole place, <laughs> the whole time, this takes place in Australia. Okay. Uh, and a little bit, I'll, I'll bring up <laughs> Queensland, which, in my ignorance, I thought was another country. Sounds like a whole yeah. land. Turns out it's just a big chunk of Australia. Yeah, oh, weird. But uh, yeah, this whole thing takes place in Australia. So they moved back to Ken's hometown of Aberdeen into a house on Mount Street. Uh, at this time, Catherine and Joy, her her twin, are 13 years old, and they get enrolled at Muswell Brook, a few miles away. Now, up, I'm trying to, I'm going to try to be polite about how Catherine looked as a young lady. So I'll just say okay. she was fucking atrocious. <laughs> Certainly not the more aesthetically pleasing of the twins, because Joy was way prettier. You can look at pictures if you want. I I love redheads. But this is not a good-looking redhead. This isn't a good-looking redhead at all. And the boys picked on her there at Muswell Brook pretty often for it. When this happened, she was known, when, so when she started getting picked on, she would take off her glasses calmly, hand them to one of her friends, and then go toe-to-toe with the boys like a drunk 1920s Irishman. Just, ah, oh, <laughs> you fucking cunt! And just... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, have, you remember Russell Crowe in that uh, South Park episode? <laughs> That's basically Catherine yeah. Knott. Her entire life. I just Google imaged Catherine and Joy, but I forgot that I didn't put their last name in. Don't ever do that. By the way, don't do you that. You Googled Catherine Google and Joy? Just, ca- Catherine and Joy. I Googled that and... You don't should you shouldn't do that. I'm gonna have to close that tab now and erase my history. As Catherine got older, she started searching for momentary escapes from this house of perverts that she's living in. You know, we brought up Oscar. He was the best man at Ken and Barbara's wedding. And because now they're living back in Aberdeen, Oscar is Uncle Oscar, he's living nearby. And Uncle Oscar has a horse mm. farm 
And Catherine loved Uncle Oscar. As a younger man, Uncle Oscar, he had been a champion horseman. And now in his older years, he was just operating a farm that took in abandoned and abused horses and nurtured them back to health. And like I said, Oscar was really the only good man in Catherine's life, in her young life. She she ends up being in relationships with good men later. But uh, a growing up Catherine, this is the only solid, good, genuinely good man in her life. And Oscar, Uncle Oscar taught Catherine how to take care of injured animals. He taught them how to feed them and clean them and tend to their wounds and to make them comfortable. And she stayed with him a lot, with her Uncle Oscar a lot. It's one of the few people, actually, that she talks highly of to this day. Mm. And like I said, you know, he offered her an escape from the abuse that she was getting at home. Uh, it was a place where she could be comfortable and safe. And before long, Catherine started bringing small animals into her room to care for them. And although it pissed her father off, it was the one time in her life that she put her foot down and was defiant against him. Which is interesting that that's the hill she chose to die on with everything else going on. It's like, yeah, now I can handle the mother raping and the beating and the alcoholism. But God damn it, I'm keeping this bird. <laughs> you know. Priority. Ken ended up backing down, though, and he let her take care of an injured bird in her room. And that was a win for her. A little one, but a win nonetheless. Now, like I said, Catherine, she stayed with her Uncle Oscar as much as she possibly could, and he took care of her with love that, for the first time, wasn't abusive. But guess what, Op? What? Uh, this is a fucked up story. And uh, if this shit had a happy ending... <laughs> We wouldn't be doing an episode on it on TCK right now. Yeah, I feared that. Oscar also, Uncle Oscar also suffered from depression. And all that came to a head in 1969 when Catherine was 14 years old and her Uncle Oscar, whom she loved very much, put a revolver in his mouth and made a wind tunnel out of his head. Oh, darn it. And uh, this was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back for Catherine when she decides she's had enough of everything. Uh, a few days after her Uncle Oscar's death, one of her brothers tries to fill her up. And for the first time, she defends herself against her brothers. She punched him so hard in the face that she nearly broke his jaw. And then she threatened to castrate him if he ever touched her again. Whoa. Now, this is one of the younger brothers that did this. So he ran and told the other three brothers that had also been molesting her for years. And they went to see if Catherine was serious. Like she was out of line. <laughs> Really? Are you fucking serious right now? Did you just... hit him in the face? Wow. You hit him in the face, Catherine? Oh, he wants to touch goodness. one titty, and you hit him in the face? Ugh. What is your problem, sis? Can you imagine, though? I mean, there are people that actually get to that point ment mentally. Like, their mentality. It, it, like, they, they really thought she was out of line. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That's she amazing. was the one out of line here. Jeez. Uh, when they found Catherine, they found her to be calm and jolly. And so they assumed that the little boy that she had punched in the face, her little brother, was lying. The boys did. But over the next few months, those three boys found out that she was not, that or that he was not lying. Because they all themselves ended up with injuries. The two older boys each received minor stab wounds with a knife. And the other one walked around for a week at one point with a black eye. Wow. Yeah, that shit was done for. <laughs> they never touched her again. And yeah. good honor. Yeah. Good honor. For sure. The boys all kept quiet, though, because they didn't obviously want their parents to know that they had been molesting Catherine at this point for 10 years. And that's when the molestation stopped, period, then and there. She was never touched again by another uh, boy, unwanted. Well, she set the tone. In 1970, at 15 years old, Catherine drops out of school, and she has minimal reading and writing skills. Now, like I said, she did poorly in school. 
But it didn't matter because she knew where she wanted to be all along was the slaughterhouse. And you don't need to know anything about Voltaire to uh, to work in a slaughterhouse. Nope. Uh, you don't need to know the writings of Poe to work at a slaughterhouse. Actually, if you did and you were reciting poetry whilst killing animals... I think that makes you even crazier. <laughs> I think that makes you, you're trying too hard. You're trying too hard. Or that is your, just your you're side trying too hard to be scary. You're, 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 your... you're getting into like Brian Draper and Tori Adamchick screen killers territory <laughs> yeah. when they were listening to Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. <laughs> it's a little too contrived. Yeah. It's a little, yeah. <laughs> come on. A little much. This is a little too Stephen Kingy. <laughs> The year after she failed school in 1971, at 16 years old, Catherine applies for a job at the Aberdeen Slaughterhouse on Murray Street. And it was the same one that her father worked at. And by the way, that uh, that slaughterhouse at Murray Street is just a grass field now. It's been leveled. It no longer exists. Again, another one bites the dust. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Catherine, at 16 years old, like I said, she's hired as a general laborer. And there was a hierarchy at these slaughterhouses, all of them. The butchers were top rung, like kind of like the generals. They were mm. the generals. And her dad, Ken, was a general. Like I said, he'd been doing it since since he was 14 years old. So at this point, uh, this is 71. Ken's probably been uh, working in slaughterhouses for 40 years, about 40 years, something like that. Uh, he was a top rung butcher. He was an artist with a blade. Mm. And uh, the general laborers, which is what Catherine was in the beginning, were, were bottom rung. They were like the privates. Right. And Catherine was put in the offal room. Which is just the entrails that you eat, right? Awful, 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 O F F A L. Yeah. And our job was to clean the organs that would be uh, packaged, as well as scraping the marrow from the bones. But mm. you sell. I've never it's, had bone marrow, but I'd like to try it. It's um, really good for you. Yeah, can't that's what I've heard. Can't say it's great tasting, but does it? Does it have? But it, but it's like a an oil, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's different different things you can, different preparations of it. But, it's not um, something you chew, is it? No, once it's removed, well, I don't know. I guess maybe you could turn it into, it's kind of pasty or dried. I don't know. There's a million, you know, depends on which, uh, you know, in the Pleistocene era, <laughs> I could go back to there and tell you how they used me. Please but, don't. Yeah. Mm. I always just watch that show Alone. Where people have to survive out in the wilderness by themselves, and they always eat the bone marrow when they scrape it out. I was wondering if it turns into a solid when you cook it. Um, you know, I don't. I don't have that much experience. Yeah, with I marrow. grew up hunting deer and everything, and we never used the marrow for anything. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I know there's a good movie called Marrow Bone. Yeah, that's a crazy movie. It's also another good horror movie called Digging Up the Marrow. Ooh, never seen that one. Ninety five percent on that penny. Yeah. <laughs> 3.11 grams, if you can believe it. I can't. That's the craziest I know. thing. The slaughterhouse Ooh. was a rough place to work up. Yeah. It was bloody. It was mostly male. There was a lot of foul language, and the smell of intestines, like, hovered in the air. For, as, for example, you didn't just say, hey, Randy, hand me that bag of hearts. You said, yeah. oi, Randy, you fucking wanker. Hand me that bag of meat engines, you goddamn cunt. <laughs> Meat engines. Yeah, that's what a heart is. It's true. It's a, it's a human three fifty. Uh, <laughs> it's 
know, uh, that kind of thing. That's the way they talk. Yeah. Mm. It's a very testosterone-fueled, uh, man-heavy, foul-mouthed job. But as you can imagine, Catherine, she fit right in. This is where she, I mean, she's been fighting men and boys her whole life. So, by the way, Catherine's sister, Joy, and her brother, Shane, also got good jobs there. So, at one point, Catherine, her brother, Shane, her sister, Joy, and her father, Ken Knight, are all working at the same slaughterhouse. It's a whole family affair. Like I said, there's a hierarchy at the slaughterhouse, and the butchers and the boners, that's what they were called. Whoa. Insert joke. Would <laughs> talk down to the general laborers and treat them like shit. So the butchers mm. and boners treated everybody like shit, which is Ken Knight was a butcher. But Catherine wouldn't have it. She wasn't having it. On one occasion, she grabbed one of the men by the throat, one of the butchers, that was running his mouth and raised her razor-sharp knife up as if she was going to cut him before being pulled away by the foreman. Did she keep her job? She did. Different time. Wow. It's wow. the 70s. Yeah. It's a different different job, different time for sure. You could pull a knife on a fella in the 70s, and they'd just be like, oh, I don't do that. <laughs> you don't even get written up or anything. Get back to the marrow. <laughs> Oh, silly puss. Now, if you misgender them, you're out. Out of here. And you're a fucking Nazi, which is crazy because the Nazis killed six million people. I think we're on the same page. We can both say we are against that. We are against that. Nazis uh, and killing six million people. But I can certainly see how misgendering somebody is right up there along the lines on a a scale of seriousness. It is. It's equivalent. Interesting times. Exciting times. That we're living in. <laughs> Catherine pretty quickly worked her way up to the job of boner and slicer. Wow. I'm just going to move on. 1973, yeah. another, it's low hanging fruit. Yeah. And I grabbed for it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> 1973, another employee at the Aberdeen Slaughterhouse. He was a slicer and his name was David Kellett. Becomes friends with Charlie Knight, Catherine's brother. So, like I said, the whole family's working here. And this new employee, David Kellett at the slaughterhouse, becomes friends with Charlie, Catherine's brother. And Charlie ends up fucking David over by introducing him to Catherine. And unfortunately for him, the two hit it off and start dating. Now, David Kellett, who was nicknamed Shorty, was a rough one growing up. He was a beer drinker, a fighter, a, uh, quote, bad boy, unquote, that kind, you know, rough around the edges. He had originally bounced around as a railroad signal worker, but uh, alcohol and a few light crimes had gotten him kicked out of that occupation, and now he had settled into slaughterhouses. David also had PTSD from two instances that fueled his alcoholism up. Um, on one occasion, he saw one of his best friends get killed on the railroad, and on another, he had to pull a bunch of dead children from a school bus that had been hit by a train. Oh, gosh. So this guy has some issues. Yeah. He's boozing and trying wow. to deal with his skeletons. Then he bumps into—and then he's inter- introduced to Catherine— by Charlie, her brother. He did, he liked that Catherine didn't smoke or drink at the time. And David also found her to be attractive. Now, I said David found her to be attractive. Um, mm. But he also found her to be loyal. He loved everything about her. And Catherine, for their entire nine-year relationship, always just called him Kellett. Just called him by his last name, which is very sweet and romantic. Yeah. Um, my wife has, like, to- toy names for me, like, Honey Bumpkins and you fucking piece of shit. I've heard her call you that. That's funny. Funny when she says that. What if your wife just called you by your last name the whole time? Just operator. Because your first name is Duh. Yeah. So she just said, hey, operator. She she just calls me op. 
early 1974, at 18 years old, Catherine moves out and into a rented farmhouse with David Kellett. So she's 18 now. She's got this place with David Kellett. Everything seems to be going well. And by September of 1974, the two of them decide that they're ready to get married. And Catherine and David Kellett, they get married, by the way, up in the most romantic way possible. Now, she's 19 at the time. He's 23. And on the day of their wedding, David Kellett gets up and starts drinking at 7 a.m. By the time it's... (laughs) By the time it's time to leave, he is sloshed. He is wasted. So Catherine (laughs) drags him out of the house, pushes him onto the back of the motorcycle that they had to take to the wedding. And then she drives on the motorcycle, her wedding dress just... (laughs) Flapping in the wind. She, She makes him hold on to her while she drives them to town in her dress and him in his tux. And he's desperately hugging on to the back of this redheaded Shrek on this motorcycle. She's in a dress. This is Fiona. Because <laughs> Fiona had red hair. Now that I think about it, I'm going to start calling her Fiona. Yep. But she never changes <laughs> during the daytime. She's just permanently Fiona Shrek Fiona. <laughs> just. <laughs> uh, so they get a room at the Royal Hotel in Musselbrook, right across from the courthouse. And before they go into the courthouse to get hitched, they stop off at the room there at the Royal Hotel, and they bang it out in the motel room. And then they walk across the street to the Muswellbrook Courthouse, and they get hitched. Now, David will later say that Catherine married him just to spot her parents because they were not invited to the ceremony. Oh. But uh, after their little shotgun courthouse marriage, they did ride the motorbike back to Catherine's parents' house and visited for a bit. And it's here, while they're visiting Catherine's parents, after the wedding, that Barbara, Catherine's mother, tells David, quote, and remember, I said she had a foul mouth, quote, watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir up or do it the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're <laughs> fucked. She'll fucking kill you. There's something loose. She got a screw <laughs> loose somewhere. Unquote. <laughs> I like that. I mean, I hated it, but I liked it. Probably a nice lady. Mm. After they're visiting with her parents, they ride the motorcycle back to their house and they bang it out once more. And then they started drinking again. So if you're keeping count, they've already there's already two fucks to fuck. They already make a two fuck. Um, two times. They've already banged it out two times. They start drinking. They both get hammered into the night and then they bang again. And David passes out. Now, that's three fuck. We now have, we've made three fuck. About an hour later, David in his drunkenness, he's like kind of jumbled awake. And he wakes to Catherine with her hands around his throat and a pissed look off on her face and a pissed off look on her face. She wanted to bang again. What? Op. Dang. Uh, This woman got hitched and just turned into a dick goblin. (laughs) Just my dick. She hissed, her hands around his throat. More dick. Okay, not really. She didn't turn into a dick goblin, but she had her hands around his throat and she was wanting to bang again. She told David that his previous performance wasn't worth a broke dick in a whorehouse and he needed to go at her again. Wow. And this is a lot of stress. This is very stressful. You know, Theo Vaughn says he can't even get erections around broken glass. So this would be hard. This is stressful. You're, you're hammered. You got whiskey dick. 
You've already banged it out 19 times. It's actually three. And now you're being threatened with your life if you don't get it up and perform right there on the spot. Yeah. Somehow, though, this guy's a hero, though, because he mustered up all the blood that he could to his penis and performed once more. And by the time he was done, his dick probably looked like Rocky in the last round with Ivan Drago at that point. <laughs> more dick! The dick goblin. Ooh. Catherine the dick goblin. Oh, silly puss. <laughs> I am really glad that you can carry this show because with in those moments where you're recounting that kind of history, I have nothing to add. Yeah, well, we're not done because Catherine did say, uh, quote, me parents fucked five times on their wedding night. <laughs> now, I don't know why she knew that her parents made fuck five times on mm. their wedding night. Oh, that's a lot of sex. That is a high bar. It's a lot of penetration. By the time they were done that night, David Kellett's penis was just coughing dust when he got off. <laughs> Had nothing left in the tank. He would go to ejaculate and his dick would just be like. <coughs> I think I've seen a Disney cartoon of that. Just dust coming out, cobwebs. Nuts are sucked up into his body all the way. There's nothing left. He's begging for water. She's just like, more dick. <laughs> Okay, so we're going to move past that. So the wedding night okay. was terrible for him. That's okay. what I'm getting at. Okay. That's what I was getting at. All right. It's a bad wedding night. Her parents made fuck five times. Uh, yeah. And Catherine wanted to make fuck at least five yeah. times or more to beat her parents. Nobody's yeah. keeping track but her. Nope. You can just tell people we made fuck 11 times. There's not no. going to be anybody questioning her, her numbers, but whatever. Catherine wore the pants in the relationship. And probably pegged David on a regular basis. <laughs> and I, there's no evidence to support this. And by that, uh, by that <laughs> op, I mean that Catherine, she wore a penis-shaped uh. rubber attachment that attached to her pelvis. And then uh. she would fuck David in his asshole. <laughs> it's not even possible. It is possible. <laughs> a penis will fit in your ass op. No. Nah. It's just a... I've been to physics class. That's not a thing. It will fit. It's exit only. It's it isn't. Yep. <sighs> Pretty sure I've asked people. Aside from pegging David on the regular, which we don't even know if that's true. I'm just spreading lies at this point. <laughs> she controlled all finances in the relationship and kept a meticulous house, which isn't surprising considering how much her mother Barbara kind of pressed that on her growing up. Um, when they got married, David's parents gave the couple $2,000 as a wedding gift. And that's a pretty good chunk of money. This is the 70s. And uh, the two purchased a small farmhouse on a road called Short Street across from uh, a bunch of wheat silos there in Aberdeen. Mm. $2,000 now for a house, that'll get you a shingle. That'll buy you one shingle. One shingle. And that yep. even then you're just renting it. That's It'll true. let you rent a shingle. That's right. Fun fact to know about wheat silos. Do you know that they're they're extremely flammable? Yeah. Yeah, That's didn't you crazy. actually have a friend that died in a wheat silo? Uh no, I no, I think that was Jack. Oh, okay. Yeah. I know uh, one of y'all had some yeah. kind of fucked up trauma that I, I don't know, you was trying to tell me about it but I wasn't listening. Yeah. Um <laughs> Makes the story fresh every time for you, though. So. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I wanted to, I didn't want to hear all the details so that I could <laughs> pretend to be interested the next time you start crying and trying to tell me about stuff that bothers you that you have deep psychological issues with. Oh, this fucking pussy is mumbling again. Oh, he was covered in third degree burns. He was my best friend. <laughs> fucking you guys. Just shove all those demons like way down like everybody else. <laughs> and you don't even drink when you let your demons out, so it's even worse. <laughs> they come out all coherent. You're and... always like, I got to talk to you about something. I'm like, I'll start drinking. <laughs> you do it for me. <laughs> uh, oh, uh, Barbara, Catherine's mom. So the two are married now. Barbara, Catherine's mom, she starts staying over at David Kellett and Catherine's house a lot, like a lot. Probably get away from Ken, I would imagine. Uh, but David hated it because Barbara was always telling him what he should be doing and what Catherine should be doing within the marriage. So she's trying to like backseat drive this marriage. Mm. And she's not even welcome there, right? Which would be frustrating. Yeah. Hey, uh, do your in-laws, do they listen to this podcast? No. Uh, <laughs> They don't. They have a they have a farm. Okay. Do your does your wife listen to this podcast? No. How come? Uh, <laughs> I think your wife. I get the impression that your wife thinks I'm a bad influence. No, my wife loves you. Actually, she thinks you're hilarious. My wife doesn't think I'm funny. <laughs> oh, okay. And I can I can understand that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Me yeah. Too. I'm just me having too. flashbacks to the Barbie and Ken joke that you made a little while ago. <laughs> And I'm still a little pissed about that. Yeah. Sorry about that. So what do you think about your in-laws? Do you fucking hate them? I love my, actually, my parents just had their 50th wedding anniversary party. We threw them a surprise party the other day. And my in-laws went because they're good. They're that good of friends. And we just really get along. We love. We okay. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> yeah. Got the diplomatic answer, but now for real, how do you feel about your in-laws? I love them. They're the best people. Third time's a charm. How do you feel about your in-laws? Salt of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> You're a tough cookie to crack. I'll give you that. I've only got my wife's only her her husband or her husband her dad is the only one that's left, and I love the guy, but he is a. He's a he's a he's a firecracker. He's he's a religious individual, I believe, right? My right. wife's dad? Yeah. No. Really? Oh. No. I thought he was like a pastor or something. No. Oh. <laughs> My wife's dad is a uh a rebel. I'll say that. Okay. All he right. he is a outlaw. Ooh, I'll just say okay. that while I was working at the jail, I brought him trays on several occasions. <laughs> So your wife's dad's the kind of guy that on the, on the reg says, I got warrants. Yes. He has them right okay. now. Okay. <laughs> that makes life interesting. He hasn't not had a warrant probably since 73. <laughs> That's fun. Oh. oh, back to Barbara and fucking old silly puss here. On top of that, so Barbara's at the house here all the time with David and Catherine interjecting herself into this marriage. Catherine starts pretty regularly swinging on David Kellett for the oh. most minuscule things. 
He's getting beat like Rihanna. <laughs> what? Mm, nothing. I didn't say anything. So in this relationship, Catherine is is Chris Brown and David Kellett is Rihanna because even even Catherine later admits David never laid a hand on her. He never oh. treated her. He never mistreated her. And David's like, I, I, it, was, it was just scary to live with her because yeah. she beat him a lot and That's he was terrified good. of her. In August of 1975, after less than a year of being married, David is now miserable in his marriage. And the two have just discovered that Catherine is pregnant. Dang it. Yeah. By the end of the year, Kellett will be having an affair with another girl in town. And the woman that he's having an affair with will also be pregnant. Oh, double dang it. May 11th, 1976, Catherine gives birth to their first child, Melissa and Kellett. Now, at one point, not long after the birth of that little girl, David runs off to Nambour, Queensland with the mistress he had impregnated. So he's like, hey, I've had enough. I'm out of 5,000. He runs off with this pregnant lady. And Catherine, instead of blaming David like she likely, like she should, actually, she probably should blame herself because she was a shitty wife. She puts all the blame on baby Melissa. Melissa Ann, oh, their, their child. Yeah. And begins treating the baby very poorly. Surprisingly, future murderer Catherine Knight was a shitbag of a mother. Yeah, huh. I know. Shocker. Now, David's relationship with this mistress with this mistress doesn't last long, and soon David Kellett leaves her too. But he does stay in Queensland because he knows he doesn't want to come back to Catherine Knight. And uh, he gets a job as a truck driver. So at this point, Catherine's now a single mother. Uh, she's still married to David Kellett, but David Kellett is now living in Queensland, which, by the way, is in Australia. Did you know that? Because I certainly knew that. Learning something every day. And uh, he's a truck driver. Mm. In July of 1976, so two months later, when the baby is two months old, Catherine is seen walking down an embankment in the small town that she lived in there in Aberdeen towards a set of train tracks. And she is holding her baby. She walks up to the train tracks up, lays the little baby down between the rails of the train tracks and walks away. And like I said, you know, laid the baby on the train tracks. Like a really bad mother, like bad at taking care of babies. Yeah. That's, that's a terrible place to let a tired baby take a nap. That is not not a good, that's not safe. We all parent differently, but I've never Jeez. been like, my baby's tired. I'll just lay it over here on these train tracks. They seem warm enough. One of the things that they tell you at the hospital, they're like, a couple things before you guys leave. You got a car seat, good check. Don't shake the baby. Don't shake mm -hmm. the baby and don't let the baby nap on train tracks. <laughs> yep. No judgment here, though. 100 emoji, heart emoji, hear me. A local man by the name of Ted Abrahams uh, was foraging nearby for food when he saw the whole thing take place. So he's watching. He, he watches Catherine uh, walk up to the tracks and lay her down on the tracks. And when Catherine stumbles off, he rushes forward and does remove the baby and saves her from the tracks. Now, while this ruckus is going on, I'm trying to figure out whose baby this is, a few hours later, Catherine emerges in some people's yard at a house at Graeme Street. Graeme spelled G-R-A-E-M-E. -E. I don't know how you pronounce that. Gra Graham? 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 Graham. Graham. Graham Street there in Aberdeen. Mm. And she grabs an axe from a wood pile and just starts swinging it at strangers. Just people yes. walking by. So she's left the baby. She's left the baby. She's nowhere. She's not near the tracks nope. anymore. Stumbled she's off into like, town. Maybe I'll go. Go over here and pick up this axe. And just start swinging it at people just trying to go to the supermarket. 
or coming back from the supermarket, or maybe they're just walking and they're thinking about the supermarket. Mm-hmm. But she starts swinging it at him, and the police Jeez. arrest her. And it's then they're like, "Oh yeah, this is the woman that dropped the baby on the train tracks." And now she's swinging an axe at people, and they're like, "This feels off. Something about this feels off." Yeah. And they take her to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, and that's in all Australia. Mm. By the way, up. Keep in mind, she's just left her baby to die on the train tracks, and she swung an axe at a bunch of people. She's released from the uh, mental hospital two days later. Just on her own recognizance. Just on just, her own, and they also give her her baby let back. Her go. Oh, what? By the way, yeah, it's the seventies. They gave her her. They <laughs> gave her a baby back. You're kidding. Oh, my god! They're like, now, don't you put this baby on the train tracks again. <laughs> She's like, okay, I won't. Oh, my gosh. Now, oh. the exact details up of this next incident are always different depending on where you read them. Uh, depending on where you listen to them about them, they were different in both, in both books. So I've put them together the best I can. And that's the details of Tuesday, August 3rd, 1976. You're going to hear a different version of this where, where no matter where you read it or hear it at. So this is the best I, I've been able to put the story together. And this is just a few weeks after the axe incident. Kathy, on this day, Tuesday, August 3rd, 1976, walks out of the front door of her home carrying her child, there, Melissa, and walks down the road to the house of a woman by the name of Molly Perry. And uh, she actually, Catherine actually worked at the slaughterhouse with this woman, Molly Perry. Molly was at home there with her children, 16-year-old Margaret and her young son, Henry, when Catherine knocked on the door and asked her for help. She claimed that her baby, Melissa, there was sick. And she asked Molly to drive her and Melissa to the hospital. Now, Molly said, of course. Yeah, I'll take you. Let me grab my keys, you cunt. That's how they talk, I think. That's how Australians talk. It's terms of endearment. Yeah. All of them piled into the car and began heading toward the hospital. But when they arrive at the hospital, they pull up. Catherine pulls out a butcher's knife and without a warning, slashes the face of 16-year-old Margaret. What? And leaves a huge gash down her left cheek. She then, wielding the knife, demands that they take her to her husband, David Kellett, in Queensland. It's like a six-hour drive. That's uncalled for. Yeah. You can pull out the knife and then work into that. Like, maybe a slash is necessary. Maybe it's not necessary. Maybe not at all. Start with words, and then we'll escalate from there. Yeah. You know. But you don't open with the gash. No. That's coming in too hot and heavy, I think. Yep. I agree. I agree. Now, along the way... Molly convinces Catherine that they've got to get gas, and they did. They had to stop and get gas. The family jumps out of the car then and runs away. But Catherine grabs Molly's young son, Henry, by the shirt and holds the knife to his throat. She then climbed out of the car with him and goes into the gas station there. You'll see some, uh, here's some shows or something, that claim she ripped the lawnmower blade off of a lawnmower. First off, I don't know where that was reported at, but second off, I think this is, People trying to um, embellish how strong she was because she was a pretty pretty good woman. They say she stood at about six foot and she was very, uh, very strong for a woman. She could beat up men. So, but I don't even know a man that can just rip a lawnmower blade off of a lawnmower. No, that's bullshit. Yeah, I agree with that. But some people you'll hear will say that there was a, a truck with a wagon there that had a mower on it and she used the lawnmower blade as a weapon. And I just don't think that's true. But She's got this young man here held at knife point inside the gas station. And it's at this time that the police do show up. And we do know for a fact that each one grabs a broomstick 
and then starts poking her. <laughs> like a tiger at the zoo? Like a tiger at the zoo. They poke her in the sides. I'm not making this up. This is a fucking SNL skit. Eventually, after being prodded like a calf nine times and bucking like a bull, <laughs> and they're hitting her with this cat with these broomsticks like cattle prods, and she's bucking and kicking, and they're probably like, easy, girl. Easy. Easy, girl. Calm down now. Calm down. And she's like, <laughs> she's throwing slobber everywhere. They do get her to drop the stuff, and she's arrested again. Easy, girl. Easy. Oh, girl. Easy. She starts like calming down and getting closer to the ground. She's like kicking and she's spinning in circles while they're poking her. I can totally picture this, though. That's the problem. Red hair flying everywhere and slobber. <laughs> Easy, girl. Easy. <laughs> and Catherine, oh, the little boy was fine. Uh, the, one of the officers did get a uh, receive a cut in the in the buck and bull struggle. Uh, <laughs> she was once again arrested, like I said, and this time they take her to Morissette Mental Hospital. And this is the point. When David Kellett, who is still living in Queensland, he's completely unaware of what all has happened, by the way, the train track incident, the axe incident. He's just started a new life in Queensland. He receives a phone call from the Aberdeen Police Department because they're still legally married. And they let him know that his wife, Catherine Knight, was in a Catherine Kellett at this point, was in a mental institution in Morissette. David then kind of like, OK, he, he, he does come to visit Catherine at the mental hospital. They rekindle their relationship. And on August 9th, 1976, about a week later, Catherine is released to David's custody with strict instructions from the doctors there to not let her forget to take her new medication that she has been prescribed. Or she's mm. going to start fucking bucking again. Hey, when when she was um, when she was the bucking bull, where was her baby? In the car. Still in the car. Oh. I mean, she mm. left the thing on the train tracks. You think she minds landing in the back seat? Probably put it in the window, in the back window. <laughs> under that giant magnifying glass that was on all cars. Here, cook She's under like, here for a little bit. I got to run in here and take care of some business. <laughs> people put their beanie babies back here all the time. Should be fine. <laughs> yeah, the baby's still in the car. Okay. So like I said, Catherine's released to David's custody. And on the way, on their way back home to Aberdeen from the mental hospital there in Marisette, they stopped to get baby Melissa, who had been who had been getting taken care of her mom, Barbara, and her dad, Ken Knott. So they're going to her mom's house, Catherine's mom's house. That's also a good place, by the way, to leave your baby, knowing her upbringing, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, were any of, any of her brothers still there? Jeez. No, they had all moved out on their own. They've good went to molesting bigger pastures. <laughs> so David, he pulls up there in the car. Catherine gets out. And goes inside to get the baby. Now, Catherine's mom, mom, mother Barbara comes outside when they pull up and passes Catherine on the porch. So she's she makes a beeline for the car. David's sitting there in the car. He's got the window down, listening to music. 
And when she gets to the window, Barbara starts yelling at him about being the reason that Catherine went crazy and then just starts unloading, just starts hitting him in the face and losing her mind. Catherine hears the commotion outside, takes a gallop off the front porch, runs up (laughs) and clocks her mother one time and knocks her unconscious. Her mom's fucking (laughs) snoring in the driveway. (laughs) Like out. So it was straight to the ground. This is so, I just feel like I know these people. Like this is. <laughs> I feel, uh, man, this seems so Australian. Yeah, to me. I don't. I, you know, this is a generalization, but. Hey, mom, you fucking cunt! <laughs> Slam! I'll kill you like a Willoughby. <laughs> Just one shot. Just <laughs> slobber. Down. She's asleep. Oh man. Catherine got in the car, and David took his wife and daughter to his mother's house. Her name was Jean, and she's pretty uh, irrelevant to this story. And uh, that's where they stayed for the next two weeks. And nothing really eventful happened there. But after that two weeks at David's mother's Jean's, they settle. The couple settles in a Woolridge in Queensland in a rented house in Pamela Crescent. Catherine gets a job there as a slicer at the Denmore Meatworks in West Brisbane at Two Lockway Riverview, and it's still there to this day. She rides a motorcycle to work. David gets another job as a trucker. And for a while, their relationship their relationship is okay. Starts off well. They seem to... She's out of her crazy phase. David's got a job. She's got a job. But within two years, the violence from Catherine does return, and she's beating David over the dumbest damn thing over and over again, just like old times. Jeez. Now... One day, David does come home from work from his trucking job, and he catches Catherine's he- Catherine in bed with one of her fellow meat workers. A lot of jokes there. He was a boner. <laughs> <laughs> you get it? Because there was I one of the it. jobs at the meat at Slaughterhouse was a boner, and he was fucking Catherine <laughs> with an erection, which is also sometimes called a boner. Oh, man. Um David made the guy, David didn't lose his cool. He didn't go crazy. He didn't kill a guy. He did make the guy jump from the second story window, though, instead of letting him use the steps. Oh. <laughs> uh, after that, there wasn't really much of a big to-do or a big fight or anything. David kind of took it like, okay, I cheated on you. Got a lady pregnant. Ran off. Now we're even. And then they continued on with their marriage. Weird. So she was like, okay, yeah, that's fair. I got another notch on the belt. You got another notch on the belt. And now we're even. And they start over again. And on March, this is a broken marriage. I don't know if you noticed. This is a broken marriage. <laughs> March 6, 1980, Natasha Marie Kellett is born. Oh, my gosh. They're bringing other ones in. I've always said it. The best way to fix a broken marriage is to have another kid. That usually just puts everything right back to where it needs to go. Yep. It's like marriage spackle. So little Natasha Marie Kellett, she's born. And believe it or not, the marriage gets worse. What? Yeah, because after Natasha was born, they also bought a house in Landsborough and moved the family again. And in their house in Landsborough, there was a pub right across the street within walking distance, just right Hmm. across the street. And David would go there to escape Catherine and drink beer and play darts. He loved darts. David loved darts. And that's where he would. that That became his escape. Now, one night while he was playing darts, the phone rang at 10.05 and Catherine told David, to get his ass home now. David said, to hell with that. I'm playing darts. 
And then he waited another 15 minutes. He finished his dart game, finished his beer. He didn't hurry home like she told him to. And then he walked home. Now, uh, the second David's foot entered the threshold of the house, he went unconscious. (laughs) (laughs) And it wasn't from alcohol. (laughs) He woke up a few hours later in the hospital. To this day, David doesn't know what Catherine hit him with. Still unknown to this day. (laughs) Jeez. He was recovering in the hospital for four days. And uh, also, he dropped all charges against Catherine. Of course he did. Not long after returning home, Catherine started... I suspect she was probably not taking her medication like she was supposed to because she also started suspecting he was having an affair with the 17-year-old that lived next door. And he wasn't, by the way. She just made it all up in her head. On one occasion, because of this, these suspicions that were completely untrue, in a rage, she burned all of his clothes in the bathtub. And the only thing that this poor bastard had to wear for a few months were the ones that he was wearing when she burned them, as well as his wedding tuxedo. <laughs> odd, odd apparel to wear to the bar later. But the final straw for David came in 1983. After a night at the pub across the street, David once again walks in, and she was pissed. He doesn't know why, but he walks in and is once again blindsided and hit over the head with a chunk of knife sharpening steel. He once again goes unconscious the second he steps into the house and once again wakes up in the hospital. She had hit him so hard that chunks of his scalp and hair were stuck to the steel of the knife sharpener. Oh, jeez. Just hearing this guy ranting, I bet it was hilarious. He wakes up mad. God damn it. I keep walking in this fucking house and going unconscious and waking up in the hospital. I'm sick of this shit. He probably had so much anxiety going forward every time he stepped into the door. Like, am I going (laughs) to? I'd start coming in another entrance. Uh. This was the final straw for David. He was finished. He was done. He wanted out up. Fortunately, though. Catherine made that decision for him. He came home one night after a long shift, truck truck driving, and discovered an empty house. Catherine had packed up and taken everything, including the kids, and moved back to her parents' farm in Aberdeen with the two little girls. David would later say that when he saw the house was empty and Catherine was gone, he exhaled and said, quote, geez, there is a God somewhere, <laughs> unquote. <laughs> Wow. And that is the oh, end of episode one up. We'll get into part two soon enough and uh and we'll close the close the book on Catherine Knight and where this really goes. And it gets bloody, it gets gross, and it gets brutal. I'm just I gotta say, I'd be okay if no one ever died in any of this because it's still a wild ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, Crazy. <laughs> She's like a female. She reminds me of a female version of Boone Helm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like. If you remember Boone Helm, these... his last act on this earth was at the uh, gallows. He jumped off yeah. the gallows intentionally. They tried to hang him. He's like, fuck it. I'll hang myself. And then his swinging corpse <laughs> came back and knocked another guy off the gallows and hung him as well early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's very Catherine Knott, I feel. 
very yeah, just a very juggernaut of them. Oh man! Well, uh, I'm excited for the next episode, and I I won't be able to sleep until I I exercise this from my brain. So, oh, we haven't even we're we're just dabbling in that red pubic hair right now. We're not even <laughs> we're not even in the in the in the jungle yet. <laughs> well, this is like up by the belly button. Yeah. Oh, gosh. It's the 70s. Okay. <laughs> like the analogy. That's a good analogy. <laughs> and with that, I'll see you next time, Op. All right. I'm still your friend. Eh. Mm-hmm.